this morning, that is Jesus' feast, he reveals himself. So with that in mind, let's look together. Luke 24, uh, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The gospel of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of his word? Heavenly Father, we are uh, thankful uh, that it is you that we find life. Uh, We are thankful that you aren't silent nor hidden, but you make yourself known. And so we do pray that in the blindness of our hearts, you would give us sight, that we might see lovely things of you in this, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, uh, I'm sure many of you celebrated the holidays this week, and my family, as we've been celebrating the holidays, we rewatched Stranger Things, uh, which was pretty amazing. And one of the things that I love about this show is that uh, everyone is sort of uh, slow to see, right? I mean, all of us know that Will Byers is alive, uh, but everyone in the show is slow to see, like, Police officer Hopper, Jonathan and Will's bro- uh, Jonathan, who's Will's brother, Will's friends. 
They all are blind to the reality that Will is alive. And so the lights, they begin to do all these crazy, funky things. And Joyce thinks something's happening. And everybody's like, you're panicking. It's just sort of your electricity and we got to fix it, right? And then uh, there's a funeral and Joyce doesn't want the funeral to happen because she doesn't believe her son is dead. And so everyone believes that she's in denial. And so Joyce is frustrated, right? Because everyone is looking at the same data that she's looking at. They're looking at the same evidence, but they evaluate it differently. But as the show goes on, like slowly people begin to warm to the reality that Will is still alive. And you see that with Hopper and you see it with Jonathan and Nancy and the friends, Mike and Dustin and Lucas, even handsome uh, Steve Harrington who, ironically, his name is Harrington and his hair is fabulous. Uh, But they all begin uh, to believe uh, that Will is alive slowly. And as they begin to see that he truly is alive, their lives take on a journey uh, that changes everything for them. Well, in many ways, as we look at Luke 24, uh, there's something similar that's occurring on the road to Emmaus. There's no Demogorgon in it, uh, but, uh, but it is pretty amazing. Uh, there's a resurrected Jesus who's on this road, and there are these two disciples that are walking, Cleopas, and we don't have the name of the other, but it was probably his wife, and they're walking on the road, and they're coming back from Jerusalem where they had gone with a party of disciples. They had gone down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And while they were in Jerusalem, they watched their friend, the one that they were following, their hope, they watched Jesus be crucified and die. And so now they have come at the end of the weekend. They now begin to walk back this seven-mile hike uh, towards Emmaus. And as they're walking on the road, uh, we know it's Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus. But Jesus walks up to them, and they don't recognize him because the text says that they're essentially blind. You see it in verse 16. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And their eyes were kept from recognizing him until Jesus takes the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them. And then in verse 31, we learn that their eyes were opened and they recognize him. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. I want us to think about Jesus is kind to allow the blind to begin to see. Right? Jesus is kind to let the blind see. And so let's just sort of think about this in two ways. We'll think first about the blind and then we'll think about him allowing them to see. So let's begin with the blind. Uh, the disciples on the road, uh, they're essentially blind. They don't recognize Jesus. They don't understand Jesus. And they believe that he's dead. And they don't expect anything from him anymore. And so in many ways, they're like many of us. I mean, Jesus is dead. And we really don't expect much from him. He was a good man. He's a great teacher. He was a martyr for a good cause. He was unjustly killed. He did some amazing things. But we really don't expect much from him today. Maybe a little inspiration, maybe a few moral nuggets, uh, but not much. But as Christians, as Christians, the resurrection is everything. The resurrection is everything to us because without the resurrection, Jesus just died like everyone else. And if Jesus just died, then he was just a man. And all this Christian stuff that we're doing 
this hour and 20 minutes that you're giving this morning is really a waste of your time. And none of this stuff matters. But if he did rise, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then he rules and he reigns over everything. It means that there is the beginning of new life today that will culminate in forever. It means that Jesus is the resurrected, risen king. Now, many will often say to us as Christians that the burden of proof is on us, right, as Christians to prove the resurrection, and that's partially true. We do have a responsibility uh, to give a reason for the hope that is within us. That's the Bible. Uh, And so we do have a uh, responsibility there. But it is also true uh, for those who are blind to look at the evidence and give a burden of proof as well. As Tim Keller says, you must come up with a historically feasible alternate explanation for the birth of the church. You have to provide some plausible account for how things began. Because it is easy for people to think back at the first century and think, oh, they're just a superstitious people. Of course they would have believed in a resurrection. And yet when you read the text, nobody expected a resurrection. Nobody expected this to happen. These who were Jesus' friends saw him die, and when he died, they expect him to stay dead. They did not expect him to rise. And therefore, as they're walking on the road, and the resurrected Jesus comes up to them, they do not recognize him. They're not expecting to see him. Now, we don't exactly know why they didn't recognize him. I mean, maybe the artist Caravaggio was right uh, as he creatively depicts the resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus as they eat this meal. He, he depicts Jesus without a beard. And so maybe Jesus' beard was shaven. Maybe in resurrected glory, uh, you know, people like Tony Long and Brad Phyllis will have their beards shaven. There's no beard uh, in glory. I don't know. Uh, or maybe Jesus' body, you know, had new characteristics. Or maybe there was a divine hindrance uh, in seeing him. Verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Or maybe it's just uh, that their hearts didn't believe, verse 25, their hearts were slow to believe. And so whatever the case of the blindness, they were blind, they didn't recognize him. Now just because they were blind to the resurrected Jesus, it doesn't mean that they were unaware of Jesus, because I want you to remember the context of this walk that they're having. Uh, They had most likely been followers of Jesus. They'd gone down uh, for the Passover to celebrate with Jesus. And during that Passover, uh, they were intimately aware and they were witnesses of Jesus' death. And so they're on this walk back home. And in many ways, it's a walk of shame. Right? In many ways, it's this emotional walk, verse 14. They were talking with each other about these things that happened. And notice what their experience is, verse 17. They stood still looking sad. Right? They were sad. And they were sad because their friend Jesus had been murdered. Uh, he'd been crucified. And they were not only sad, but they were afraid. And they surely were afraid because as Jesus' followers, what this meant is that they could be next. They were in potential danger of having the same thing that happened to Jesus happen to them. This week, uh, Fleming Rutledge uh, wrote about the parallels between lynching and crucifixion. 
And here's what she says. She says the parallels are obvious. There's the public nature of both methods of execution. There's the kangaroo court, the powerlessness of the victim's family and friends, the location chosen to invite a maximum number of witnesses, the, the permission and even participation of the authorities, the enjoyment of the onlookers who were invited to hurl abuse and insults, the obscenity of the accompanying rituals, the sexual shaming, and the use of the method as a warning to other potential victims. Right, crucifixion was intended not only to shame and to dehumanize the person, though ironically in that violence, the perpetrators of it are dehumanizing themselves, but it was also meant as a warning that anyone connected to this person, the same could happen to them. And to think about this connection between lynching and crucifixion is sort of uh, hard to think about because if you're like me, you tend to think about the story of Jesus and you think, yeah, okay, uh, he died and he rose from the dead. And then we sort of move on with life. But I want to invite you to put yourself into the story. I want you to think about the history that Jesus was literally tortured Right, that hands were put into his hand, nails were put into his hands and into his feet. He was nailed to these two pieces of wood. He was lifted up. He's bleeding. He's suffocating until he dies. And this is one that people called a prophet in verse 20. One who was mighty in deed and word before God and all people. And this man was crucified. And his crucifixion was not clean. Right? It wasn't sort of in a sterile hospital room. It wasn't quiet. It was a loud, state-sponsored lynching. It was a public spectacle, a public shaming. It was a place of mockery and violence. It was a painful death meant to humiliate and dehumanize. And then to warn anyone that was associated with Jesus that they needed to watch their backs. Because what they were doing to him could happen to you. And the reality is this. You have no power to stop it. And so as they're walking back from Jerusalem, they are sad and they're afraid. And they've begun to lose hope, verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Right? They had these hopes that their life was going to get better. That's why they followed Jesus. They thought that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman authorities and he was going to lift the burden of their oppression. They thought that life was going to get better. Right? Their, their hope was primarily political and they believed that Jesus was going to be this Messiah and he would come and he would make Israel Israel once again. Right? He hoped that uh, their interest and their culture would be sustained and upheld. He hoped that they would be set free. And so as they leave Jerusalem, having watched their hope die, they are now dejected. And their hopes for joy and freedom are over. And because they had such hope and it didn't deliver, they go home uh, with the weight of oppression just weighing more heavily upon them. They're blind, full of sadness, full of fear. Uh, but this doesn't mean that they didn't know things about Jesus. They still knew a lot about him, right? The context of the conversation is Jesus. Jesus comes up to them. He asks this question, what are y'all talking about? 
in verse 19, and they say, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, in their blindness, they still knew a lot of things about Jesus. They knew facts about Jesus. They knew where he was from. They knew that he was a prophet. They knew that he had done great things. They knew that he had spoken beautiful things. They knew that he was popular. And they knew that he was killed. And so they were like uh, many of us, uh, many of those in our own culture, who think that Jesus is just a good man, a moral teacher, martyred and rejected by the religious and political establishment for his views. But they did not know that this was the resurrected Christ. They thought that Jesus' life ended with his death. And they did not know that he had defeated death and now rules and reigns over all things. They thought that everything in this world ends in death. They did not know that in Christ new life had begun. And here's the point, right? We can think about Jesus as just sort of this teacher, or we can know him for who he is, the resurrected Messiah, the hope of all creation, the redeemer of humanity, the forgiver of sins, the one who is your hope, the one who has defeated death. He is God. You see, we can know a lot of facts about Jesus, but do we know him? And in many ways, uh, we know things, but we don't know him in the same way that we know a lot about Taylor Swift, right? We know her songs, we know how to dance to them, we can trace the trajectory of her career from sweet teenage country girl singing about high school breakups to pop icon singing about high school and breakups, and... Uh, <laughs> And you could be walking down Park Avenue and you wouldn't even recognize her. Uh, even when she welcomed you to New York, you would just sort of pass by. And uh, anyway, so that's funny, uh, I think. I thought it was on Friday it was really funny. Um, <laughs> but anyway, but uh, those, you know, right, those who were on the road, they knew a lot of stuff about Jesus. They just didn't recognize him. They didn't see him. And they were probably really confused about things because before they'd left Jerusalem, they'd heard uh, these reports, verse 22. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tombs and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see so they'd heard these reports, and they're trying to make sense of things. And I think one of the things that is lovely about Jesus is that uh, he doesn't leave us in our blindness. He doesn't leave us in our fear. He doesn't leave us in confusion. He doesn't leave us in our sadness. But he begins to allow us to see him for who he is. And so what does Jesus do? He begins to take them through the scriptures. And I think that this is really amazing because, I mean, think about what's happening here. There they are, they're walking, Jesus comes up to them, and they're like talking about Jesus, and he takes them through the Bible. I mean, he could have just said, hey guys, it's me, you know, like, resurrected, good to see you. But he doesn't do that. I mean, he begins to take them through the Bible. 
which is why I think Jesus asked this question in 17 and 19, essentially, what are you talking about? And he wants to hear them talk about the life and the death of Jesus. He wants to hear them kind of reflect upon the events that they have experienced to see how they understand them. And he wants to help them begin to understand Jesus and to understand all their life's events in light of the story of the Bible. And so that's why he says to them in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And what he's saying is, look guys, you're thinking about your life, you're thinking about Jesus, you're thinking about the crucifixion, but you aren't thinking about it biblically. right? In order to understand Jesus, in order to understand life, you must understand it in light of the fullness of God's story. And that's why Jesus then in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them all, that the, script, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That would have been an amazing Bible study. I mean, what a, what, what a seven-mile walk to have Jesus just kind of walk through the Bible with you and say, hey, that was me, right? That's about me, too. Oh, yeah, that psalm, that's about me. And it's amazing because Jesus is saying this to us. If you want to understand and see the resurrected Jesus, you must understand me in light of the Bible. So he takes them through the entire Old Testament, showing them how the whole story of the Bible is pulled together. Like all the threads of the Bible are pulled together in Jesus. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, in her book, The Crucifixion, talks about it this way. She says, the Old and New Testaments give us images making a kaleidoscopic, inexhaustibly rich storehouse from which to draw meaning and sustenance for all times and all generations. No one image can do justice to the whole. All are part of the great drama of salvation, the Passover lamb, the goat driven into the wilderness, the ransom, the substitute, the victor on the battlefield, the representative man. Each and all these and more have their place, and the cross is diminished if any one of them is omitted. We will be best enriched by the meaning of the crucifixion and all its manifold aspects, not just as an intellectual construct, but as a dynamic living truth empowering us for the living of these days. It's a long quote, but essentially what she's saying is this, that the Bible and all of its imagery come together in Jesus. That all of the images of the scriptures, things like the Passover lamb, the whole idea of the temple, like all the sacrifices, the suffering servant in Isaiah, the prophet, the priest, and the king, the liberation of, uh, of the Israelites and the Exodus, forgiveness, the temple, uh, people like Melchizedek, uh, that is this, this shadowy figure in Genesis that pops up in Hebrews, or things like in Numbers when there's a snake put on a staff and it's lifted up and people live. Like all of those images, all of these things are pulled together in Christ. And to understand Jesus, you must understand the images. And to read the images, you must understand Jesus. And without them, we miss God's story in this world. And as the scriptures were taught, I think it's fascinating. It talks about how their hearts that had been slow to believe, they become warm. And then this Bible study uh, closes as they go to the table. In verse 30, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. And their eyes are opened and they recognized him. Right, as they begin to eat this meal together, they begin to see him. 
Maybe it was in the inflection of his voice. Maybe it was uh, in his prayer. Maybe Cleopas and his wife were uh, back in Luke chapter 9. They were part of the feeding of the 5,000. And as Jesus breaks and blesses the bread, they remember that Jesus did these things. And there's something familiar about what's going on as they've heard the story of the Bible. And they remember Jesus and all that he had done. Or maybe Luke is being liturgical with us. And he's telling us that in the breaking of the bread, the words of the scriptures are made visible. Or maybe... As he hands out the bread to them, they catch a glimpse of the wounds on his hands. But somehow in that moment, what they see is the resurrected, vindicated Christ, the one who had come and given himself for them. The one who had given himself as uh, as a ransom for his people. The one who had come to redeem his people. The one who had come to give hope to his people. The one who had come to free his people and to forgive his people. And at that moment, as they break the bread, they see him for who he is, the vindicated, resurrected Christ. And their blindness gave way to sight. And then it's interesting, he like just vanishes. Like, I have no idea. I got nothing. Let's, let's pray. Uh, but, uh, but you can imagine at that moment as he vanishes, they're like, what? You know, I mean, we're getting, what happened? But what I think is beautiful is that though they no longer saw him, their hearts continued to burn. They were continued to, continually warmed as they thought on the scriptures. You see it in verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Their hearts burn from the scriptures, right? These hearts that had been slow to believe now begin to burn with life as Jesus taught them about himself and his word. And that continues today. We do not see him, and yet as we read his word, we begin to see him. The spirit of God is at work teaching us, showing us, warming our cold hearts uh, to him. I would assume that many of you have had that experience with the Bible. I would assume that at times you've read the word of God and you've sort of strangely been warmed. There's a joy that comes at times. I still remember uh, when I started reading the Bible for the first time when I was in college. I remember like turning page after page after page and it seemed like it was, every page was highlighted uh, just for me. I remember like reading the Bible for the first time and it wasn't just words on a page and it wasn't just a set of rules or a set of ideas, but it became the resurrected Jesus speaking and making himself known to me. Now, I don't, I don't feel that every time I read the Bible. I wish I did. I don't. Uh, but it's not uncommon for the Spirit of God to impress himself upon our hearts And to give us this deep sense of his presence with us. And a deep sense of forgiveness and comfort and hope. And when our hearts are strangely warm to him, we've got to talk about it. I mean, and that's what they do in verse 33. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven with those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed. And it's interesting. They had just sort of chided Jesus and said, Hey, you can't keep going. It's dark. But when they see him, they get up in the dark and they go back to Jerusalem. They just walked seven miles, had a great Bible study, had a piece of bread. And then they like say, hey, let's go back. And they walk seven miles back to begin to share this with their friends. Because Jesus is risen. 
And when he's risen, we must speak. And as we speak of the resurrected Christ, we're encouraged, right? Because it's the resurrected Jesus that begins to calm our fears. And it's the resurrected Jesus that begins to give meaning to our lives as we think about this life that we live. And it's filled with death and injustice and pain. And it's easy for all of us to think that that death and injustice and pain is going to win, And as we live our lives, we grow old and we die, and the labors that we undergo on a daily basis seem to end in failure and frustration. But as we think about the resurrected Jesus, as we see the resurrected Jesus, we are reminded that though we grow old and die, though most of our life feels like frustration and failure, that will not not be the way it ends. That we live towards and for a God who has already defeated death. And one day, Jesus will return for the great resurrection when all of his people will be lifted up from death. When all of his people will be lifted up from frustration. When all of us will be lifted up from our shame. When all of us will be lifted up from our failures. And we will be with the resurrected Jesus. And what will he be doing? It tells us in Revelation 21, he'll wipe the tears from our eyes. Death will be no more. There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore. Those things will have passed away. And the Lord will reign forever. The resurrection of Jesus is the proclamation to the world that neither death, nor violence, nor injustice, nor shame, nor sin will win. Because Christ has already won. And because he has won, he's begun even now to liberate us from the curse. And so now even though we do not see him, we see him in his word. We see him in the breaking of bread by the Holy Spirit. And he begins to warm our hearts with a vision of the resurrected Christ and the glory of his reign. Let's pray.